This morning, we are going to continue our study through 1 Timothy, and we'll be starting where we left off last week in chapter 3, verse 14. So Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, who is, at this point, the overseer of a church in Ephesus. So Paul writes to Timothy, verse 14, these things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. So he's starting this text this morning with these things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. So evidently, Paul wanted to come to, to Ephesus to give these things to Timothy firsthand. He wanted to sit down with him and say, hey, this is how you should do these things. Uh, now, he's not with Timothy now, so a close second is writing to him. So he hopes to come visit Timothy in Ephesus, but he currently has to settle for just writing these things to him. Um, and it is helpful for us today. We can look back on these things that he wrote to Timothy, and we can see how we are to conduct ourselves in the church. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. Now, he's not sure that he's even going to make it to Ephesus to see Timothy again. Um, so you kind of get that sense of uncertainty here. He says, if I'm delayed, which kind of tells me he's not sure, um, but he wanted Timothy to really know how to lead these people in the church, how to serve them well um, until he got there to be with him. And at which time Paul was planning on taking over leadership from Timothy. But if Paul never came, then Timothy was kind of a perpetual perpetual leader in that position. He says, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. There is a right and a wrong way to act in church. And the main idea of what Paul will write to Timothy about this uh, has to do really with order. Order is a big deal to Paul. Um, and it's a big deal that the church maintains order. Uh, and it it's so important that church members, but especially leaders, exhibit this type of order. They're conducting themselves orderly. Now, we don't want visitors walking into a zoo, right? If I was visiting a church and the preacher was slamming on the pulpit, yelling at the congregation, ah, and then the congregation started yelling back at the preacher, like, I probably wouldn't be back to that church. It wouldn't be a very inviting environment. Um, but with some kind of order, with a sense of uh, right and wrong, that is more inviting. And that's something that Paul is trying to get across to Timothy. Now, in verse 16... Uh, in verse 15 and 16, Paul highlights the importance of this local body of believers, the local church, 
by describing it under three images. Okay, and we're going to look at those real quick. Uh, I write to you this so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. So he calls the church the house of God. Uh, that is the family or the household of God on earth. Believers are the children of God, quite literally. And so the church is God's family. It's his household. Galatians 6.10 uses the phrase household of faith. And this insinuates that we all belong under the same roof in the same household under this common faith that we all share. And Ephesians 2.19 speaks of believers as members of the household of God. Again, it's the same idea. We are all family members under this one roof. And these are just a couple of verses that kind of highlight that that term, the house of God, uh, but it's supported all throughout scripture. And you can see that um, we are children of God and co-heirs with Christ. So we are literally in this together as a little church family. And Paul wrote this in these Paul wrote this epistle to instruct people how to live as members of this family. He says then, the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So now he goes into this architectural language. He talks about pillars, a ground of truth. Now, these people in Ephesus would have been very familiar with the idea of a pillar. If you remember Diana of the Ephesians, uh, there, was, there would have been a prominently displayed temple in the middle of the city uh, to Diana. And no doubt at this time, they would have been building these giant pillars in the front of this temple. Um, so they would have been very well acquainted with the fact that a pillar was very necessary to hold up structures. If you're going to build something, you need a type of support for it, okay? And uh, the local church is very similar to this in that uh, the network of local churches make up the universal church. So you have this string of pillars all the way around this temple holding it up. Well, the local church functions much in the same way. And by themselves, these little local churches are fairly insignificant. But together, they make up the body of Christ. Um, and a pillar really doesn't serve any purpose besides holding something up, maybe to be decorative in some cases. Uh, but a pillar without anything to hold up is really not much good. Uh, but together, all these little local congregations bear the name of Christ on the earth. and. That is really the main idea here. It is the pillar and the ground of truth. It's the local church's charge, our duty, um, our responsibility to preserve, preach, and practice the truth that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Verse 16, he says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And then he goes into a little... Um, piece which 
seems like it could have been a hymn from the early church. They would have sung this um, as a, a type of hymn. He says, God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in glory. Core tenets of our faith. This is what we believe. Um, And it's very succinctly put here. So this last little verse, verse 16, is really talking about the church as the body of Christ and as a continuation of Christ's earthly ministry. Uh, It says God was manifested in the flesh. Jesus literally came to the earth in human form. He walked among us and he ministered to them. That was his earthly ministry. He came, he died on the cross, he rose, and then he ascended back to heaven. And that is what we place our faith in as believers in Jesus Christ. Now, the church only came to be once Jesus was taken out of the earth. So Jesus was taken out, and then the church was placed on the earth to continue that ministry, to continue gathering the fullness of the Gentiles. And, and the Jews. So the church is the body of Christ. It is the continuation of Christ's work on the earth. So in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul also speaks of the church as the body of Christ, and he puts it very plainly. He says, for as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. So each one of us is a member of the body, which is the local church. And all of the local churches are of the body of the universal church. And so we see these puzzles kind of fitting together to give us this bigger picture. And we're going to get, well, we probably won't get all the way through chapter four, but we're going to dive into it. Chapter four, verse one, he writes, now the spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Back in verse 1, he says, Now the Spirit expressly says. Uh, Expressly can also mean distinctly. The Spirit distinctly says, uh, very pointedly says, that in latter times some will depart from the faith. Um, And I think this latter times is talking about right now. Okay, we have a different phrase used for the last days in the New Testament. Um, This is speaking of a latter time or a season towards the end, which I do believe we are in right now. And the faith says some will depart from the faith. Obviously, the faith with the definite article means the faith of Christianity, the faith in Jesus Christ. Um, So some will depart from that, from the, the good and perfect Jesus Christ. Um, And the faith also, those essentials of the faith, some of which Paul just listed in verse 16 that we just read. 
those are core to this faith that Paul is talking about. And it's interesting to me that he doesn't say that the church is going to run these people off. He doesn't say that there's going to be a great catastrophe within the church that is going to dispel some of its members. That's not what he says. He just says some will depart from the faith very plainly um, and even a little bit boringly. I mean, I kind of want some more there. I want him to say, like, what's going to drive him away? But we don't get that. So it looks to me like it will just be a very simple falling away of faith. Uh, These people, and Paul writes at the end of 2 Timothy about Demas and how Demas um, turned his affections towards the world. And he was no longer interested in the faith. And he departed from Paul um, and went his own way. Uh, He writes, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica. Now, that's a sad thing to have to say about someone. And unfortunately, I have known people, I'm sure each of you have too, that kind of followed in Demas's footsteps. Now, there wasn't anything that really drove them away uh, that, that we know of. And they just kind of got further and further from the faith. And they just started drifting off. What happened probably was they simply turned their affections towards the world. They were no longer uh, keeping their eyes on the proverbial prize. Um, And we'll talk about that prize later today. Uh, But it seems that in latter times, aka right now, uh, there are some that are going to depart from the faith for no other reason than their affections being turned towards the world. And unfortunately, it does happen, and it will continue to happen. And he says that they will give heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, simply giving up the truth for a lie. Uh, we know that Satan is a great counterfeiter of what God has made, and Satan loves to twist things to his own agenda. Uh, he will take the things of God and he will twist them. These doctrines of demons. Uh, giving up a truth for a lie. Verse 2 says, Speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. And these people will will have spoken so many things that go against the true doctrine of Christ that their conscience will no longer be sensitive to the twinge of the Holy Spirit when they say something false, when they say something wrong. So it gets easier and easier the more you do it to continue saying wrong things and living wrongly, departing from the faith, turning your affections to the world. It gets easier and easier to do that the further down you go. Um, And that is the sad truth of the matter. Verse 3, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Now, some people will think that they are more spiritual because they, A, forbid to marry, or they don't marry themselves, or uh, they abstain from foods which 
they deem to be unclean or otherwise untasteful. Um, and the, the important thing here is that they think that they're more spiritual by doing these things. And Paul himself said, you know, I think it's good if you don't marry. Like That's awesome. If you can abstain from sex, if you can keep yourself as I am, evidently Paul was single at the time he wrote that. Um, he says, if you can stay that way, good on you. It's good because you can focus on the things of God. You're not worried on like pandering to your wife, you know, so you can focus on those spiritual things. Um, but he says, as a concession, <laughs> thank you, yeah, as a concession, Paul says, but, you know, I, it's okay to marry. If you have to marry, go ahead. That's fine. So he's not forbidding it. He is allowing marriage, and I think that's important for us to see, especially as leaders in the church. Uh, There are some sects and some denominations, religions, who do forbid the clergy to marry. Um, And I simply don't see that supported in Scripture. So that is good for us to see. Um, Forbidding to marry is not something that I find in the Bible for clergy members or church leaders. Commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving. Now, some people will tell you that not eating a certain food is going to make you more spiritual. That's not the case. Now, there is an interesting little caveat that we throw in there. He said, uh, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. Now, I, just personally, can't receive meatloaf with Thanksgiving. (laughs) Now, I'm not going to tell you not to eat meatloaf. I'm not going to say that not eating meatloaf makes me a more spiritual person. Okay, but that is just preference, right? So not eating foods because of preference is different than what we're talking about here. Um, I don't eat a lot of foods because of preference. Uh, But... Yes, if you can receive it with thanksgiving, it's good. Uh, For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Now, one thing that Summer and I like to do is just pray before we eat, pray before a meal. Um, And I think that's an awesome thing to do. And I definitely wouldn't say that it makes us more spiritual or any better of Christians than anyone else. Um, But it is helpful for keeping our minds focused on the eternal things. Because before we satisfy the flesh by eating, we satisfy our spiritual need, which is for God. Uh, So we have this communion with him throughout the day, and in turn, it brings us closer together as well. So I think that is an awesome practice and something we try to, to stick to. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. But reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself toward godliness. 
uh, a lot of good stuff in this last part of chapter four. He says, if you instruct the brethren in these things, and these things would refer to what he's mentioned before this point, uh, specifically the centrality of the person and the work of Jesus Christ, and the importance of keeping that doctrine of Jesus Christ front and center in the church. Uh, he's going to go in to say, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ. If you do those things, if you keep Christ first, uh, center, then you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine, which you have carefully followed. It's easy to let other things in the world come in and choke out your time with God, right? And as a church leader, it's even more important that you maintain that time with God, your personal quiet time, uh, time reading the word, time in prayer, because you are pouring out to people as you minister to them, as you lead them. And you cannot pour out from a glass that's already empty. You must be taking in something. You have to feed yourself before you can feed someone else. I bet most of you have ridden on a plane. Hence, we got a lot of plane riders. What did they tell you about that little gas mask, a little oxygen mask, when you take off? You got to put it on yourself before you put it on someone else. Because if you pass out and your kid's sitting there needing oxygen, you're going to be of no help to them if you're already passed out. You got to stick that thing on your face first. You got to make sure that you're living, you're breathing, and you are nourished with that oxygen. Then you can turn to your kid and put the mask on your kid. But you got to be alive to help them stay alive, right? It's the same thing here. He says, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine, which you have carefully followed. So he wants Timothy to stay in the word. He wants him to be nourished as a church leader so that he can pour that out to his congregation, to the people in his church. Now, we'll get to the physical exercise in just a second, but um, along those same lines, I don't want my coach okay, a coach in any sport, to be morbidly obese on the sideline yelling at me to run faster. Okay, that doesn't uh, make me want to do that for him. Okay, he can be yelling at me all he wants, and that's going to go in one ear, right out the other, because he doesn't demonstrate to me the things that he's telling me to do. And I know that there's a lot of great coaches who are larger than average, um, I've had some too. <laughs> but generally, you want to be able to, to demonstrate something before you tell other people to do it. Okay, if you're a personal trainer, I would want my personal trainer to be fit if he's telling me how to be fit. And I think that makes a lot of sense to us. And uh, even with the coach analogy in weightlifting, for example, I, I'm a weightlifting coach. Olympic weightlifting. And um, when I would look for another coach to coach me, I would look for someone who has competed at the level that I want to get to or above that level. 
I wouldn't look for a coach that has never been an athlete. There are coaches who are great, who have never been an athlete. That's not who I would look for. Okay. I want to find someone to coach me who has been at the level that I want to get to. And I think that that's very, um, it's not too much to ask. Right. So I want him to be a successful athlete so that he knows where I'm at trying to get there. Okay. So same thing with, with this, we want our leaders. Paul wanted Timothy to be nourished, to practice the things that he preaches, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine, which you have carefully followed, but reject profane and old wives fables and exercise yourself toward godliness. Now, this kind of fringe stuff tends to flourish in the church. Uh, it's like the Ripley's of Christian world. Uh, that stuff that you can't, can't hardly believe. You know, Ripley's, believe it or not, Christian edition. Uh, so Paul is instructing Timothy to refrain from these things, reject these things, and stay in the center of the truth, Jesus Christ. Um, reject the weird, strange, uh, otherworldly nonsense, and stay centered. And that is Paul's exhortation to this young leader here. He says, but reject profane on the old wives' fables. And just a quick aside, this is not a uh, dig against old wives. Um, I know some of you have old wives. And they have old husbands, so that's okay. Old wives' fables and exercise yourself toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that is that now is and of that which is to come. But exercise yourself toward godliness. So instead of chasing after those fringe things, chase after or pursue Godliness. And godliness comes from two words, God-likeness. We want to be like God in these things. It is interesting to me that you don't find the word godliness in the New Testament until you get to 1 Timothy. And then you see it eight times in 1 Timothy and several more times in 2 Timothy and Titus. So Paul really wanted to impress on Timothy this idea of godliness. Um, it is important for someone who's going to be teaching others to practice what they preach, practice what they teach. Uh, we must, absolutely must, represent Christ well. For bodily exercise profits a little. Now, no one is telling you that exercise is bad for you. In fact, many people say that exercise is good for you. I would agree with that. Cardiovascular exercise can increase longevity and uh, just make you a healthier person. Strength training can make you more resilient to falls, things like that as you get older. It's just going to bolster you up. Uh, so Paul's not even saying don't exercise. He's saying uh, exercise is good, but it has limitations. Um, it only benefits you in this life, and it only ben benefits you a little. But he does say bodily exercise profits a little, 
But godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. So godliness is this exercise as well. It's not a physical exercise. Sometimes it can seem like it, but it's a spiritual exercise. And it builds character, striving for godliness. Now, what happens when you work out? You strain, you build muscle. Uh, we have this thing called progressive overload. Okay, I'm going into my little coaching deal now. <laughs> progressive overload is just the increasing resistance on a muscle. So over time, you increase this resistance, and the muscle adapts to that resistance, and it gets larger, gets stronger. So in our Christian walk, it's the same idea. Progressive overload, spiritual progressive overload. Uh, And this just makes me really happy as a coach. I love this. Um, As you're going through life, there are stressors. There's resistance. Um, I think I can get an amen for that because everybody has those things that just weigh on you. Um, And when you move those things uh, or when those things are moved for you, it creates an adaptation in your character. It refines you. Okay, And we had this idea of a refining fire in Scripture, um, specifically with the gold. I remember couple months ago, I think it was, we talked about this illustration of the gold being melted down, refined, the impurities rise to the top, you can scoop the impurities off, they're easy to get to, since the gold's been melted. And then you have a more refined product at the end of that process. Well, that's like our sanctification, we're becoming more and more like Christ on the earth. Now, um, when these stressors are applied to the muscle, um, and it adapts. We call that process hypertrophy. It's the growth of your muscle cells. Okay, um, Hypertrophy is just the growth of cells. So when we have this pressure, this weight applied to us in general life, we see that adaptation of our character. Um, and that is what he's saying here. Bodily exercise profits a little. There's some good in it. But godliness is profitable for all things, having the promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. So we're building our character on the world, on the earth, in this life. But we also have a hope of things to come in the next. In heaven, there are no stressors. There are no forms of resistance applied. Um, So what does that mean? That means we have to build our character here on earth. And that character that we build on the earth is going to follow us into heaven. Okay? And you can't improve on your character once you get to heaven. You're with Christ. It's peachy. Uh, There are no stressors being applied. If I do this all day, what's going to happen? I'll get tired, but probably not a lot of hypertrophy is going on. If you're moving nothing, there's no resistance. You're not doing any work. Uh, It's just is what it is. Flailing about. Okay. 
I hope this is as entertaining to y'all as it was to me writing this. Um, this is a line from a Christian hip-hop song. And <laughs> it's supposed to be taken fairly lightheartedly. Uh, this song takes some liberty in the illustrations that it uses. Uh, it says, What about life beyond this place? <laughs> Are you lifting spiritual weights and pumping up faith? <laughs> In prayer, do you do sets? In church, do you do reps to build righteous, massive biceps and pecs? (laughs) And if you just have to listen to that song after service, come talk to me. I'll tell you what song it is and who sings it. Um, But I thought that was a very apt illustration of what we're talking about this morning. And it's got a good beat to it. So that's exciting too. Verse 9, he says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. For to this end, we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the savior of all men, especially of those who believe these things command and teach. So we see this phrase come up again. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. We saw that once before in chapter one, verse 15. He said he used the same phrase. Uh, This time, it is in reference to what he just said about the promise attached to godliness, namely that it is profitable for all things. He's saying that is true, and that is worthy of all acceptance. He says, for to this end, we both labor and suffer reproach. Now, the end he's talking about is godliness. To this end, to godliness, we labor and suffer reproach. Now, the oldest manuscripts here read strive instead of suffer reproach, but it's the same idea. Because we have rested and do rest our hope in the one living God, he is the source of our life. Who is the savior of all men, especially to those who believe? These things command and teach. Now, he says that Jesus is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. Now, that may seem confusing on the surface. It's not as confusing as it looks. Okay? This is not saying that everyone is saved. That's very important. You are saved if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God that he died, he rose again, and he is the propitiation for your sins. That is how you are saved, if you believe that. Um, However, in 1 Timothy 2.4, Paul writes that God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. We know that Jesus came to the earth to die for all men, because it is the Father's will that all should be saved, that all should repent. But a father can put food on your dining room table. And he can provide food for all of his children. Let's say he has five kids. He can provide for them. He can place that food on the table. But that food is not going to do anything for those kids unless they take it and they eat it. Now, once you take the food and eat it, it becomes effectual for you. That food is now in your system. It can be digested and used. 
It's the same way. The Father, God the Father, has provided this sacrifice for us, for all men. He has died for all men. That does not mean that all men will reach out and partake of that sacrifice. You have to each individually accept that gift that he's made available to you. It's been placed on your dinner table. All you have to do is eat it. Uh, Just like the, and I love this example. I use it all the time. But it's just like the Israelites who, when they were going through the Passover time, they had to slaughter the lamb and apply the blood to their doorposts. Okay, it wasn't enough for them to believe that the blood of that lamb, when applied to the doorpost, would be effectual for saving their firstborn. Now, they had to believe that, but then they had to actually apply the blood to their home. And it's the same way with Christians, with with people. We have to apply the blood of Jesus Christ to our own lives. Now, we have to believe that it's effectual, yes. And then we have to apply it. We have to reach out, take that bread, the bread of life, and take it for ourselves. Who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. Now, when you take that sacrifice, when you make it your own, you ask Jesus to literally be the Lord of your life. You are saved. You're sealed. And Jesus Christ is your Savior. And especially for you, because you've accepted that gift. Because he is now effectually the Savior and Lord of your life. Paul says, these things command and teach. That is the core of what we believe as Christians. Um, And many things surrounding that are good things. But this is the core. These are the tenets of what we believe. Christ, the Son of God, coming to the earth, dying, rising, effectual for all men to commune again with the Father. After we had been separated from him in the garden, when Adam and Eve sinned, man fell, uh, became sinful. God has now redeemed us. And we get to live in this little blip of history where we get to experience what Christ has already done for us. Those in the Old Testament looked forward to what Christ would do, but we get to experience the fullness of joy in knowing what Christ has already done for us. And that is a wonderful thing to be a part of. And these things we will command and teach. And we are going to stop there in chapter four this morning. We'll finish up next week, Lord willing, and break into chapter five. Let's close this morning in a word of prayer. 